We're going to finish out 1 Thessalonians today, so if you have a Bible, you can open to 1 Thessalonians chapter 5, and we're going to start in verse 12. So we've been uh, in 1 Thessalonians for a while. We're going to continue on into 2 Thessalonians um, after this. Uh, I hope that it's been beneficial to you. Uh, I know I speak for the pastors when I say like it's always beneficial to us because um, you know God, God speaks to us when we put our sermons together uh, for you, and so um, I hope uh, it's our hope that, that everybody else benefits from it besides just us, uh, and that God speaks to you uh, as well through just kind of three fallible guys that uh, don't always get things right. Um, Turning to verse 12 of 1 Thessalonians chapter 5, we're going to look at just kind of in this whole thing, really just kind of a guide to practical Christian living. So uh, we're not going to you know, get into end time stuff in this one. That, that's more to come later, but uh, this is hopefully not, not going to be real controversial at all and just some practical uh, wisdom from Scripture about what it looks like uh, to live uh, as a Christian. And so uh, starting in verse 12, Paul says that we ask you, brothers, to respect those who labor among you and are over you in the Lord and admonish you and to esteem them very highly in love because of their work be at peace amongst yourselves. This is one of those parts of Scripture. We pastors like this part of Scripture because we get to stand up here and tell you, like, respect us, right? Uh, Honestly, it's kind of weird to have to do that. Um, It it feels awkward to have to do that, but this is what Scripture tells us to do, that Paul uh, reminds them of the labor uh, in the Lord, that that he as a pastor, uh, that he and and his uh, partners uh, did for these people. And uh, I'm here to tell you, like, there, there are some weeks as a pastor that are just, like, really great weeks. Um, you get to hear stories of just how God is impacting people's lives and, um, you know, text messages, emails, phone calls, whatever. We just hear the good things that God is doing. And then there are other weeks as a pastor that they're, they're not real great weeks at all. Um, some weeks are just hard because you all sometimes have hard things going on in your lives. We get the the privilege and the honor to walk with you through some of the difficulties of life, uh, and we really do consider it to be that, a privilege and an honor. Um, But some weeks are hard, and and some weeks it feels like work to be a pastor. Other weeks it doesn't feel so much like work. It's like uh, some weeks it's like I can't believe that we get to do this and that God has has put us in in a role to get to do this. And and other weeks it's just the grind. Um, and, And we as pastors carry the weight of you, the people, uh, as we go throughout our week. Uh, We think about you, we pray for you, uh, you're on our minds constantly, um, and we we thank God for all of you, but we also uh, pray for you, and, and we labor. There are some weeks, the same same thing with like sermon prep. Some weeks it's it's not difficult always to prep a sermon. There are other weeks where it's more kind of like the grind and difficult passages and figuring out, um, you know, what, what does God want to say through this? And, and Paul is reminding the people um, to respect those who put in that kind of labor among you. I, I think we would all agree as pastors that, that we don't look at what we do as a position as much as we look at it as a role, if that makes sense. And, and what I mean by that is, is that we don't look at uh, just the structure of our church as some kind of hierarchy with, with people at the top of a pyramid. We don't look at it that way at all. I, I think if an honest reader of our Bible would say that God gives to the church different people to serve in different roles. And the two primary offices in the church are those of elders and deacons. But, but even beyond elders and deacons, God gives everyone a role to serve, a purpose to fulfill in the church. And so we would look at kind of a level playing field, not, not a pyramid, but a level playing field where everybody's equal. 
but we have different roles and different ways that we serve the church. And for us as elders, as pastors, our role is that we get to stand in front of you week after week and bring to you the word of God. And it's something that we don't take lightly, that we don't approach flippantly. Uh, we take in a very serious way. And we carry the weight of that week after week. Sometimes, I don't know if to say fearful is the right word, but like, like we don't want to stand up here and get it wrong. Right? We don't want to stand up here and tell you something that's not true. We don't want to stand up here and, and unpack things that, that we don't have at least a little bit of understanding about. Right? We, we take this very, very seriously. Uh, and Paul is reminding them to respect that labor uh, among you and those who are over you in the Lord and admonish you. Not one of the fun parts of being a pastor is admonishing people. Right? Sometimes we have to sit down with people and, and we have to tell them the hard truth at times. Some of you have been the recipients of that, right? Um, and I hope that you know that in those moments that if we ever have to sit down and have those hard conversations that um, as fallible as we might be as, as flawed men, that, that we love you. And our desire is to be truthful with you and to deliver the truth in love. And sometimes to deliver the truth in love, that requires difficult conversations about difficult things, about things that we would all rather avoid, Right? Um, but, but we do that, and Paul kind of gives us a little bit of a glimpse really into the work of the pastor. Work of the pastors is to labor among people, to be over them in the Lord. Uh, Paul would say in his other writings, follow me insofar as I follow Christ. Right? Paul never says, you know, follow me because I've got it figured out. Follow me because I know more than you, and Paul was a smart guy. Paul doesn't say, follow me because I'm somebody in the world, right? Paul had a standing in the world. But Paul would say, follow me insofar as I follow Christ. And I think we as pastors would say the same thing to you. Follow us insofar as we follow Christ. And in saying that, that puts a little bit of some impetus on you all to make sure that we're following Christ and that we're leading you in a Christ-like manner. Right? And if there ever comes a time when we're not following Christ or not leading in a Christ-like manner, not preaching uh, in a Christ-centered way, that, that you all have some responsibility in that to call us on that and to admonish us in that, right? It's part of the roles that we play for one another. But Paul says, for those that labor among you and that admonish you in the Lord to esteem them highly in love because of that work. The work of the pastor is, like I said, not, not always glamorous. Sometimes it's fun, sometimes it's exciting, sometimes it's exhilarating, sometimes it's hard. But we know what we're signing up for in doing this, and we know that God has not called everyone to be a pastor. But God has called some and, and given pastors as a good gift to the church. At the end of the verse 13, Paul has this statement that doesn't seem to fit. He says, be at peace amongst yourselves. Like he encourages you uh, to respect those who are over you in the Lord, to esteem those who admonish you, uh, and to be at peace amongst yourselves. And I don't know about you, but uh, you, you know about me because I've said before, I, I grew up in the church. I've been in the church my whole life. And in a lifetime of being in the church, I've seen some funky things. I've seen some weird things. I've, I've seen some things that, that just shouldn't be that are. Sometimes the church can be a hard place to be because it's filled exclusively with flawed and broken, sinful, selfish people, right? All of us. The church is full of those kinds of people. And sometimes that sinfulness and those flaws and that selfishness and that brokenness takes front and center stage as it plays out in how we relate to one another. And I'm not proud to say like I've participated in that in my lifetime in the church. And I think what Paul is getting at here is that, that when we trust God, by trusting those that he's placed over us, that there's something peaceful that can happen in a church. And, and I would be 
kind of remiss if I didn't just say, you know, thank you for following us as we follow Christ. Um, you know, I, I don't see the weird things in this church that I've seen in other churches. Not to say that we're completely free of weirdness, we're not, but there's just something special that God is doing here at the door. And uh, I feel like of the churches that I've been in in my lifetime, I don't think I've ever felt as kind of loved and supported and appreciated as a pastor as I do here. And that's a credit to you all, and it's a credit um, first and foremost to what God is doing in the lives of everybody that fellowships here. Remember, the church at Thessalonica, it's a brand new church, probably just a few months into existence, and right out of the gate they experienced persecution. And this is the context in which Paul is writing, and he's reminding them in the midst of, of their newness, in the midst of their persecution, in the midst of their not being very popular in their society, in their community, Paul is reminding them, like, there, there might be a war going on out here, but there doesn't need to be a war going on in here. Right? There might be people out there that, that are against you and that are trying to wreck what you're doing, but, but that doesn't need to come from within, right? Because there's a greater purpose to what we're doing than coming to consume week after week on a Sunday service or the various programs or things that we have during the week. There's a greater purpose. The greater purpose is that we would together become more and more like Christ. There's a greater purpose that together we would be able to uh, not only learn more about who God is and what he's done to us, but that we would take that message out there and proclaim it throughout the world. And those things are impeded greatly when we can't get along within our own ranks. Right? And so Paul is reminding everybody to, to trust those he's put over you as an act of faith as you trust the Lord. I was listening to one pastor one day who I greatly appreciate and greatly respect, and he made a comment that says being a pastor is being a commitment to being misunderstood. And there, there are times that it feels like that. Right? There are times that it feels like um, you know, we're trying to lead in a direction that, that might not be a popular direction. It might not be the direction that people want to go. But, but again, our commitment is to the truth of Scripture, and I hope that we've demonstrated that to you. I hope that you can clearly see that about us. And, and it's not our desire to ever rub up against you, but if Scripture rubs up against you, it, it needs to. If Scripture rubs up against me, it needs to, right? And one of, one of the beautiful things about our model here at the church, I think it was Brent that has said this maybe a while back, but you, know, you all have three pastors. I have two, right? Brent has two. David has two. And it's a beautiful, beautiful model that we subscribe to that, that we can co-pastor together and that, that we don't always have to be the ones giving week in and week out, that, that there's times that we can receive as well. There's times that we can sit under the preaching of the word just like you do rather than having one person up here week after week continually giving and giving and giving and giving. Right? Our, our tank gets refilled all of the time, and we do that for one another. And there, there are weeks that, that one of us, uh, two of us, is talking the other one off of the ledge. You know, that happens uh, from time to time. <laughs> but, but in all of that, um, it, it is, again, our distinct privilege and our distinct pleasure to get to do what we do with you all, uh, for you all, and serving uh, in this way. And so um, I hope it's not weird and awkward to hear me stand up here unpacking the scripture that's telling you all to respect your pastors. <laughs> This, this is what the word tells us to do. And so Paul talks to them first and foremost about how they relate to their pastors. Starting in verse 14, he talks to them in 14 and 15 about how they are to relate to one another. And he says that we urge you, brothers, admonish the idle, encourage the faint-hearted, help the weak, be patient with them all, see that no one repays anyone evil for evil, but always seek to do good to one another and to everyone. And so Paul is using some strong language. He's not saying, hey, this, it's a good idea that you do these things. He's not saying, let me, let me give you guys a suggestion. 
He's saying, I urge you. In other words, the, the strongest language that he can use, pay attention to what he's about to say. And what is it that he urges them to do? He urges them to admonish the idol. Remember in Thessalonica, it was thought that there were some in their kind of religious fanaticism that they were so concerned about the second coming of Christ and that they might miss it that they quit their jobs so that they could be on the lookout for the second coming of Christ. And in the quitting of their jobs, there was this expectation, it would seem, where they would expect that the church would just provide for them. And so they were kind of a drain on the church. Right now, now we're all about helping people in need and those kinds of things. We're all about uh, benevolence, right? We have a care fund where, you know, we help people uh, within our ranks that have a need. But it seems that there was this group of people that they were irresponsible in the quitting of their jobs and that they just became religious weirdos and expected the church to support them in their weirdness. And Paul is telling them to admonish those people, admonish the idol, right? The people that are able-bodied and that can, tell, tell them to go back to work. Right? Tell them that they need to take care of their family. These are the things that Paul is talking about. And not because you're mad at them, not because you're offended by them, but because you love them and it's what's right for them. Right, And that you're being truthful to those who need to hear truth in a loving and in a gracious way. He says to encourage the faint-hearted, those that are just having a difficult time in life. Right, It's our job as those who fellowship together that we would encourage the faint-hearted. Right? Have you ever gotten a phone call from somebody and they're just having a bad day or a bad week or a bad season of life and sometimes you just don't know what to say other than, well, you know what, I'll, I'll pray for you. You know, hope it works out. You know, see you later. Because sometimes we don't know what else to say or, or what else to do or how to act in those circumstances. And Paul tells us here that it's our job to encourage the faint-hearted. And how do we encourage the faint-hearted? We pray for the faint-hearted. We make sure that the faint-hearted know that we're praying for them. I have a friend right now who's just going through a really rough season of life. And this last week, he texted me probably five times, need prayer right now. And, and all I had to do in those moments is, you know, text the prayer hands emoji back to him, just like, so he knows that I'm praying for him. Right? There was a moment where we picked up the phone during the week and we had a conversation and I got to hear a little bit about the difficulties and, and knew more how to pray specifically. Uh, but he's got kind of this group of about four or five guys that he'll just send that text out to need prayer right now. And he's got four or five guys that all respond, you know, praying for you, brother. Courage the faint-hearted. Being intentional about not only praying for them, but letting them know that we're praying for them and, and talking through uh, their difficulties. We're told to help the weak. We're not told to point the finger at the weak. We're not told to be mad at the weak. We're not told to uh, tell the weak to get their act together. We're told to help the weak, right? Kind of like the faint heart of those who just can't and they're having a hard time. We're told to help the weak. We're told to be patient with them all. And sometimes I think that this is where, where the church can falter. Right? We can get behind the idea of admonishing the idle. We can get behind the idea of encouraging the faint-hearted. We can get behind the idea of helping the weak. We struggle sometimes with patience in all of it, don't we? I think of another person that I've known over the years who's had a, had a struggle with alcoholism. And he'll always call and say, like in, in his drunken state, I did it again. And it's gotten to the point in life where like, it's really frustrating. It's like, why don't you call before? Why don't you call when you're sitting in the parking lot of the liquor store? Why don't you call when you get off work and you're thinking about driving to the liquor, like, you know, make the phone call at a different time. And, and it gets to be really frustrating. It's like, here we are again, right? But God tells us to be patient. 
being patient doesn't necessarily mean that we sweep truth under the carpet, right? Being patient doesn't necessarily mean that we're not truthful. But Paul reminds us here that, that we should be patient with people in their struggles because God has been patient with me in my struggles. God has been patient with you in your struggles. There's never come a point in for me a lifetime of knowing Christ that, that he's come to me and said, get your act together. That hasn't happened, right? There's never been the finger shaking, like, what are you thinking? He's patient with me. He's gracious with me. He's merciful to me as he is with you uh, in our failures. And so we're reminded specifically with the idle, the faint-hearted, and the weak to admonish, to encourage, to help, to be truthful, to love, but to do so with patience. And then he goes on to say, see that no one in verse 15 repays anyone evil for evil. Right? I read this and, and, I, and I think about for me, like I like to repay evil for evil. I do. Hopefully not shocked to hear that. <laughs> right? If, if you wrong me, I'm going to wrong you so that you know not to wrong me again. I might wrong you more than you've wronged me. I might one-up you just so you don't come back at me again. Like that's, that's my flesh, right? That's kind of how we operate. If you're mean to me, I'm going to be mean to you. If you take from me, I'm going to take from you. When, when I was growing up, I had a, a neighbor kid uh, when I was in grade school, and, and we would go over to each other's houses, and we would play with our Hot Wheels cars. And time and time again, I would, like my Hot Wheels collection would shrink. And, and I knew exactly where my Hot Wheels were going. My neighbor was stealing my Hot Wheels. Right, so I would go over to his house and I would get all my Hot Wheels back and then I would take a few of his to send a message. Right, I've been like this my whole life. And then he would come to my house and he would take my Hot Wheels and he would take a few, like it just, it never ended. Paul tells us, don't do that. Don't repay evil for evil. It's our, it's our bent, it's our inclination to do that. Right, we, we want to get justice. And so we want to repay sometimes evil for evil, but Paul says, always seek to do good to one another. Right? I think about like what would have what would it have looked like for me to do good to my neighbor, and like it probably would have been good for me to say, you know what, you can just keep my Hot Wheels, and here's a couple more. Right? That might be the Christ-like thing to do. That's hard for us because it goes against every inclination that we have. But we're told here to seek to do good to one another, in other words, people in the church, like we should first and foremost and especially seek to do good for the people that you can see here in this room, right? The people that we fellowship with. But then Paul doubles down and says, and to everyone, right? We might be able to get behind the idea of doing good to those in the church, right? Because we, we all kind of buy into this. But this idea of doing good to everyone, the, the people out there, right? The people that, that might be coming against us. Remember, this is a persecuted church and Paul is telling them, like, do good to those who persecute you. Jesus tells us that we ought to love our enemies and to pray for those who persecute you. I can't imagine any more difficult thing to do because on my best day, I, I have zero motivation to love my enemy. And if I pray for those who persecute me, it's going to be like an imprecatory prayer. Like I'm calling down, you know, fire from heaven on those that persecute me. I'm not praying good things for those who persecute me, right? But this, this is the Christ-like way. Remember Jesus on the cross. Well, what did he say about those who put him there? Father, forgive them. They don't know what they're doing. And if anybody at any moment could have called down like the army of angels from heaven, it would have been then. And Jesus' prayer was simply, Father, forgive them. They don't know what they're doing. As he was doing good for those who didn't do good for him. 
as he was dying for those that were his enemy, right? Romans 5 tells us that while we were his enemies, that Christ died for us. And so this call that Paul gives, not to repay evil for evil, but to seek to do good for one another and to everyone, it really is Christ-like. He's calling us to live in the way that Christ lived and to do as much as we can, as much as we're able, what Christ did in doing good for others, even those who don't do good for us. And so all of this, we, he tells us how to relate to our pastors. He tells us how to relate to one another in the church in verses 16 to 22. Um, he tells us really kind of how to relate to ourselves or what we might consider to be some spiritual disciplines. In verse 16, he says, Rejoice always. Pray without ceasing. Give thanks in all circumstances, for this is the will of God in Christ Jesus for you. Do not quench the spirit. Do not despise prophecies, but test everything and hold fast to what is good. Abstain from every form of evil. And so these are kind of inner inner things. Rejoice always. Now, some of us are wired maybe to rejoice always. Like some of us are wired to be a little more optimistic. Some of us are wired to be a little more pessimistic, and it's a little bit more difficult to rejoice always. But, but Paul doesn't give a caveat here. right? If you're an optimist, rejoice always. If you're a pessimist, rejoice sometimes. He doesn't say, he says, anyone and everyone rejoice always, all of the time. And, and I might say that, that if we can't find something to rejoice over, we, we might not be doing Christianity the right way. Right? We're, we're missing something. There's a disconnect if we can't think at any given moment of something that we can rejoice over. The thing that we can rejoice over the most is that, that I once was lost, but now I'm found. I was blind, but now I see. God saved me a sinner. I can rejoice over that day in and day out. When we think of our church, there are things that we can rejoice in. When we think of the people that we fellowship with and the things that God is doing in our lives, we can rejoice over those kinds of things. Paul in Philippians chapter 4 basically tells us, like, think about those kinds of things all of the time. Think about the things that are noble and think about the things that are praiseworthy. Think about the things that are going to cause you to have affection to one another and to Christ. Think about those things. And the idea is like, don't think about the things that, that drag you down. Don't think about the negative things. And, and that's, you know, impossible to do, right? We, we, we tend to dwell on the negative. But in those moments, especially when we're dwelling on the negative, maybe if we were to stop and dwell on the positives, dwell on the things that Christ has done for us, it would overshadow the hard things, and the negative things, and the difficult things. And Paul says to do this, not some of the time, but all of the time, always rejoice always. He says to pray without ceasing. And, and I don't think he means that, that, you know, we should be on our knees at the altar of the church praying, you know, 24 seven. No, nobody could do that, right? We, we have to have jobs and, and lives and, and kids and all of these things that we have to do throughout the week. But, but the idea of praying without ceasing is that, that we're praying as we're going. And, and I might add a caveat to this. What, what kinds of things are we praying for? Paul doesn't tell us here what to pray for. He just says pray without ceasing. Pray all of the time. Right? What kind of things do we pray for? Something that I've, a question that I've had in my mind for years now is like, how, how do you pray to the God that knows everything? How do you pray to the God that controls everything? How do you pray to the God that sees and hears and orders everything? How do you pray to that God? And it's probably not by me giving me my list of suggestions. At the end, like, I got some pretty good suggestions for God, but that's not what he wants from me. 
Right? He doesn't want me to pray that he would fix this and do this and change that when, when maybe he's already ordered these things to be. Right? How do you pray to, to a sovereign God? And I don't, I don't know that I have a, a complete answer to that question, but, but I know that it's probably not by me telling him how to run the universe in a better way, which is often what I do. It's probably often what you do too. And so in our praying without ceasing, um, maybe, maybe we should think about praying for others as much as we can. Maybe we should think about praying for our friends and praying for our family, praying for our church, praying for our community, praying for other churches in our community that are Bible-believing and gospel-preaching. Right? Maybe our prayers, like I don't think what Paul had in mind here is that we would pray without ceasing, that, that we would come into a windfall or win the lottery or something like that. Right? I've prayed those things before. I don't think that's what Paul has in mind here as he's talking to a persecuted church. He might even have in mind as he's talking to a persecuted church, like pray for those who are persecuting you. Pray for those who are against you. And not, not that fire would fall from heaven on them, but pray that they might come to know Christ, you know, those who are persecuting you. That's probably what Paul has in mind when he says pray without ceasing. <clears throat> he says to give thanks in all circumstances. He's using some very definitive language here. Again, not, not suggestions that he's giving but he's telling us definitively, do these things all of the time, everywhere. Kind of like rejoicing. If we can't think of something at any given moment to be thankful for, there's a disconnect in our faith. There's a disconnect in our trust in Christ if we can't think of one single thing to be thankful for. And so the encouragement for Paul is give thanks in all circumstances. Give thanks, persecuted church, in your persecution. Give thanks for it is what he's saying to them. How in the world do we give thanks in the midst of persecution? That's a hard one. But no doubt the reason that this church was being persecuted is probably because they were, they were, they were seeing people come to Christ. They were seeing people in their community alter their lives because of what Christ was doing. And that didn't set well with some. And so Paul is saying, maybe don't focus so much on the persecution and the hard things, Maybe focus more on the good things that God is doing in the midst of the difficulty, right? And be thankful all of the time. Always look for something to be thankful for might be another way to say this. And then he says that this is the will of God in Christ Jesus for you. It's God's will for us that we would rejoice always, that we would pray without ceasing, and that we would give thanks in all circumstances. This is God's will. Remember, a few verses back where we were told that our sanctification is God's will, right? Our, our holiness, our righteousness, our set-apartness is God's will for us. And so we have to connect those dots that rejoicing always, praying without ceasing, giving thanks in all circumstances is a part of our sanctification. That is God's will for us. That we would focus more on what he's doing and less on what we think he should do or what we think he's not doing. And that we would rejoice and pray and give thanks all of the time, everywhere, in all that we do. I'm not a big fan of things like you know New Year's resolutions or whatnot, but, but let, me, let me encourage you, let me even challenge you with maybe even on, on a daily basis, even a moment-by-moment -moment basis that, that you would have at the forefront of your mind thinking about what can I be? What can I rejoice for? Who can I pray for? What can I be thankful for? 
What what a great way even to start your day when you get out of bed to think, who can I pray for besides me right now? What is it that I have to be thankful for? When you start looking for things to be thankful for, trust me, you you will not come up with a shortage of things. It's it's not going to be a struggle to find things to be thankful for. Right? We all have good things in our lives that we can thank God for. So those are the positives. Then he gives us some things kind of more to the negative about don't doing things, about things that we ought not to do. In verse 19, he says, don't quench the spirit. But what does it mean to quench the spirit? For any of you that have ever built a fire, maybe this is a helpful analogy. If you ever built a fire, you know that you don't build a fire and just leave it. Right? Eventually it's going to burn out if you don't tend to the fire, right? If, if you don't you know, get down on your knees sometimes and blow on the fire to, to fan the flames, if you don't put more wood on the fire, right, it's eventually going to stop. This idea of quenching the spirit would be kind of likened to you know, building the fire and not tending to it, right? not putting logs on the fire when they're needed. What, what kind of things can we do in our lives to not quench the spirit? Well, this, this first list is a good start. Rejoice always, pray without ceasing, give thanks in all circumstances. That's a way to not quench the spirit. It's a way to continue to build the fire. What other kinds of things can we do to not quench the spirit, to not let the fire die out in our lives? Read the Bible, pray, right? Two very simple things that that hopefully we do all of the time anyway. What about phone calls or text messages throughout the week asking other people, how can I pray for you? What's God doing in your life? What did you read in the Bible today? Right, those kinds of things stoke the fire. Right, those kinds of things help us to not quench the spirit. Showing up on a Sunday morning, that's putting a log on the fire. Showing up to a community group throughout the week or whatever other things happen throughout the week, those are all things that put logs on the fire. As we begin to get out of the habits of doing some of those things, that, that would be akin to quenching the spirit not putting logs in the fire, letting a fire just kind of dwindle out as time goes on. He says, don't despise prophecies. And what I don't think Paul has in mind here is I don't think he has this idea of like the Old Testament prophets that would kind of foretell the future. I don't think he's talking about that when he says don't despise prophecies. I think more what he has in mind is like the the regular reading of the word or the preaching of the word, the hearing of the word. Don't despise the word. Don't despise what God has given us. Don't don't despise when you come to church and you hear something that might rub up against you. Don't despise it. Consider that, that if the word rubs up against you, that, that maybe, maybe God is right and you're wrong. Right? Consider that. Don't despise when, when the word rubs up against us. I, had, I heard a pastor say one time uh, in a Q&A session, someone asked this pastor, what's the difference between teaching the word and preaching the word? And his reply was, you have not begun to preach the word until it begins to rub up against people's lives. And, and what he meant by that was like the, the gospel at some level should offend us all. God's word should offend us all. It should come against our flesh, it should come against our sensibilities, it should come against our mindset to some degree. The opposite of that would be um, that if you always agree with your own interpretation of the Bible, like like maybe maybe you're not reading it the right way. Right? If the word never rubs up against you, maybe you're not reading it the right way. And so Paul's telling us don't despise the prophecies or don't despise the word of God, especially when it rubs up against you. 
it's for our own good. The Bible tells us that if we belong to God in Romans chapter 8, verse 28, if we love him and he loves us, that everything that happens in our life is ultimately for our good. Now, that's not the same thing to say that everything is good, but that everything is for our good. And that would include when the word of God rubs up against our own sensibilities. When the word of God proves us wrong, it's for our good, right? Don't despise the prophecies. Then he says, test everything. In other words, in your not despising of the prophecies that, that you have an impetus on you that would, that would say that you need to test. When the word of God rubs up against you, test it, right? Don't, don't just take our word for it because we're the ones that are up here every week. Test it. Test what we say. Test what's preached to you. Test what you hear on the radio. Test what you listen to on your podcast. Test what you read in, in other books. Test it against the word of God. And if it's found to be from the word of God, embrace it. Don't despise it as much as it may rub up against you. And then kind of as a catch-all, Paul says, uh, hold fast to what is good. In verse 22, abstain from every form of evil. So it's kind of like if I missed anything, like just just don't do evil. Abstain from evil in general, right? Romans chapter 1 tells us that, that we as humans are inventors of evil, right? There's, there's no end to the evil that humanity can perpetuate. We invent it. And Paul says, abstain from all of it. Anything that's evil, anything, um, anything that, that goes up against the word of God, abstain from it. Anything um, that, that doesn't cause you to rejoice and to pray and to be thankful, abstain from those kinds of things. Right? We, we live in a, in a society today where uh, sentiment about what is good and what is evil is, is rapidly changing. It's rapidly changing. What was good yesterday is evil today, and what was evil yesterday is good today. Like the prophet Isaiah writes, woe to those who, who consider evil good and good evil, right? And we're, we're living in a society where, where even the word of God in, in some parts of the world now is considered to be hateful, considered to be antiquated, out of date, out of touch, particularly uh, what the Bible would say about gender and sexuality. People are considering that to be hateful. And Paul reminds us to abstain from every kind of evil. It doesn't, doesn't matter what the world says to, to an extent, what is good and what is bad. Paul tells us to abstain from every kind of evil measured by the word of God, not measured by popular sentiment, not measured by society. And he says, from all of it, steer clear, abstain from every sort of evil. He's talked to us about how to relate to our pastors. He's talked to us about how to relate to one another as we fellowship together. He's talked to us about our own uh, kind of inner life or spiritual disciplines. And in verse 23, we see about how we are to relate to God. And he says, now may the God of peace himself sanctify you completely. And may your whole spirit and soul and body be kept blameless at the coming of our Lord Jesus Christ. He who calls you is faithful and he will surely do it. Brothers, pray for us. Greet the brothers with a holy kiss. I put you under oath before the Lord to have this letter read to all of the brothers. The grace of our Lord Jesus Christ be with you. Paul reminds us in all of these things, like he's given us a list of things to focus on, a list of things that he's calling our attention to. But he doesn't end his letter by saying, try harder to be better. Right? A lot of what kind of passes for Christianity these days is nothing more than messages about how to try harder to be better, and that's not what I'm here to say today. 
It's not what we as pastors want to ever proclaim to you because the, the, the reality, the, the hard reality is that you can't try hard enough to be good enough. You can't. And if we stand up here and tell you week in and week out, here are all the ways that you can try harder to be better, right? Have, have a good week this week. You're not going to have a good week because you know as well as I do that you can't try hard enough to be good enough. Right? Just as we talked about earlier, like the loving your enemy thing, that gets me every time. I can't do it. I don't want to do it. I can't. And Paul reminds us here that it's the God of peace who sanctifies us. It's not me who sanctifies me. It's not you who sanctifies you. It's God. It's his work in us, right? Philippians uh, chapter 1 tells us that he who be, or chapter 2 tells us that he who began a good work in us will be faithful to complete it. And so the God that justified us, the God that saved us, the God that, that pulled us out of the muck and the mire of Psalm 40 is the same God who continues to make us holy. It's the same God. The same God that saves us is the same God who works in our life from that moment till the time that we see him face to face, working in us to sanctify us, working in us to make us holy, working in us to make us righteous, working out our salvation for us with fear and with trembling. And so Paul reminds us that sanctification, the work of trying harder to be better, that's God's work. That's not my work and it's not your work. Now that doesn't mean that we just get to put our faith on cruise control. I'm not saying that at all. I don't think Paul is saying that. But at the end of the day, it's God's work and not yours or mine. He says, may your whole spirit and soul and body be kept blameless at the coming of our Lord Jesus Christ. Again, this this is God's work that we would be kept blameless. Right? I stand up here before you not as a blameless person in and of myself. Right? I can stand before you as blameless because of who Christ is and what Christ has done. Right? Christ is blameless. And I trust in him. And if you trust in him, he's imputed his blamelessness to you. Not because of what you did, but because he loved us and because he has done for us the thing that we couldn't do for ourselves. Paul reminds us that he who calls us in verse 24 is faithful and he will surely do it. Paul doesn't say, well, like I think, I think there's a fighting chance that he's going to do it. He doesn't say he'll probably do it. He doesn't even say like it's most likely going to happen. He says that he will surely do it. In other words, like you can take it to the bank that, that Christ sanctifies those who belong to him. He sanctifies those whom he justifies. He who calls you is faithful. Paul writes in his letter to Timothy, he says that, that God's faithful because he can't disown himself. That, that our faith, his, his faithfulness is not predicated upon our faithfulness. Even when we are faithless, Paul tells Timothy, God remains faithful. And so in other words, God's faithfulness doesn't depend or hang in the balance on my faithfulness. Right? It's not like if I can't try hard enough to be good enough that God says, oh well. God is faithful even when I'm not. And I especially see God's faithfulness when I'm not. And so he reminds us that he who calls you is faithful, he will surely do it. He is the one who will sanctify you. He is the one who will work out in you all of these things that we're talking about as you pursue him. Right? That, that's our work is that, that we would pursue Christ. He has pursued us and he's brought us into his fold. 
and in his justification of us, in his sanctification of, of us, that, that our work is that we would not quench the spirit, that we would continue to throw logs on the fire. And in that, God will work out in us what he needs to work out in us. Then Paul just very briefly in verse 25 says, brothers, pray for us. Paul has a lot of things that he probably could have asked for prayer for. Right? We, we know Paul's life. We know that it was difficult. We know that he was persecuted. We know that he had it pretty rough. He could have given a long list here. Pray for this and this and this and this and this. But he just simply says, pray for us because he's writing a letter to them that's not about him. Right? Paul, even in his difficulties, kind of has his eyes off of himself. And so he just says, brothers, pray for us. Then he tells them, greet all the brothers with a holy kiss. And this was probably a cultural thing at the time. I'm not going to tell you to greet everybody with a holy kiss today. But the point is that, like, show affection for one another, right? Show affection for your brothers and sisters in Christ, whatever that looks like. I know we're in a, in a weird pandemic and, and, you know, we've got handshakes and fist bumps and elbow bumps and some people hug and some people don't, but whatever. The point is here, show affection for one another because it's right in the Lord. Remember in John 13, we're told that the world will know those who follow Christ by what? By the way they love one another. And part of that is the affection that we show for one another. Right? That we would come on a Sunday morning with intent to show affection for the other people that show up on a Sunday morning. We've talked many times before as pastors, we know that the live stream kind of fills a void. And there are people who are watching that for various reasons can't be here but you can't show affection over a live stream for one another, right? But, but when you're here face-to-face, when you see each other in the grocery store or at the soccer game or whatever it is, right, show affection for one another because it says something about our faith and it says something about who God is and what he's done for us as we're able to show affection for one another. And then he ends by saying, I put you under oath before the Lord to have this letter read to all the brothers. And so Paul telling them, like, this is important stuff. Make sure that everybody hears it. Make sure that everybody knows about it. Make sure that everybody understands it. And then as Paul often does, he closes out his letter with a reminder of the grace of our Lord Jesus Christ. Right? God's unmerited favor is what grace is. Grace is something by its nature that we don't deserve and that we can't earn. Grace, by its nature, is something that's bestowed upon us when we don't deserve it. Right? We don't bestow grace upon ourselves. It comes to us from another. And in this case, Paul is reminding us of the grace of the Lord Jesus Christ, that, that he died for us. He gave his life for us so that we would come to know him. He forgave those that nailed him to the cross because of his grace because it was undeserved and unmerited. And it's important that we remember as really a pillar of our faith, the grace of the Lord Jesus Christ, that he was gracious to us and he's gracious to us that we ought to be gracious to one another. That That's in short, the, the call to the Christian life, be gracious to others because God was gracious to you. And a fitting way for Paul to close out his letter and a fitting way for us today as we get to celebrate communion together are remembered today. We get to celebrate communion together, the, the, the juice and the bread representing the blood and the body of Christ that was shed for us, that was spilt for us, his body that was beaten and bruised for us. Him taking upon himself the, the wrath of God so that those that would trust in him would not have to suffer the wrath of God. And so communion gives us a very visible reminder of that as we celebrate this from time to time.
And so consider that today as we close out. Consider that uh, today as you come up and take communion, remembering what Christ has done for you, remembering that the Christian life is not one of trying harder to be better, but simply resting and trusting in the grace of our Lord Jesus Christ and letting him do the work in us of sanctifying us, of making us holy, making us righteous, and setting us apart. Father, we're thankful for today. Thankful that we have your word, that you've revealed to us uh, everything that you want us to know about you in your word and in the person of Jesus Christ. So I pray, God, that you would help us to have minds that are fixated upon you day in and day out, that you would help us uh, to be people that are always looking for the things to be thankful for, always looking for the things to be rejoiceful over, always thinking about how we can pray uh, not only for ourselves but for others, that you would help us to be people that are continually uh, putting logs on the fire and not quenching the spirit, that we would be people that are continually letting the word uh, of God rub up against us in ways that challenge us but that we would consider the truthfulness of the word in those moments. Fathers, we celebrate communion today. Help us to be reminded of your work on the cross and what you've done for us and how much you love us. And we ask it in Jesus' name, amen.